as can be. Ready, set, go. Welcome, everybody. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, part 2. And then we'll continue on from there. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Sing the word of God. Sit for a second. Come back. Lord, uh, offer this time up to you, uh, to focusing on you. Pray for your spirit. Grateful for your son. And uh, ask that you help us to understand your word a little bit better uh, by your spirit. Keep us humble and contrite and looking to you in all things. And just bless this time now, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall be with child. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for I'm sorry. I, I, I was just taught how to remember the signs of the cross. Spectacles, testicles, wallet, and watch. <laughs> and the Greek Orthodox, they do spectacles, testicles, watch, wallet. <laughs> that was a big debate. <laughs> that was from Richard Dutcher, by the way. All right, so we left off. We had three boxes on the board, and Paul says the first list he gave us last week was the ways that they had been approved in being in ministry, and that was the in list, the in, I in list, where he said, in much patience, afflictions, necessities, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, fastings, in list. Then there's the by list in the middle. And he says they did these things by pureness, knowledge, long-suffering, kindness. And that left us off with, and by the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to conclude with uh, as. So he does, we've been in these sufferings, we went through them by these things, and now we're seen as, and we'll finish up today with those. So let me go back to where he left off. It's through, he says, or by the Holy Spirit, they've been able to deal with all this anguish and sufferings and tumults and difficulty and just everything that you can imagine. It seems like the apostles went through. Of course, the Holy Spirit works on us through its gifts and graces and brings us peace. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 2, 23 says that the fruit, singular fruit, not fruits, but the fruit of the Spirit is, if you want to know if the Spirit's working in your life or if you are experiencing the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithness, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And so uh, we get the gist because Paul mentions many of these things in what he says here. The point is, human beings can endure almost anything, I think, um, when the presence of God is with them. When they sense that God is with them, we're able to 
do a lot. And that's what Paul seems to be saying. This is how he got through the in-suffering, in-difficulty by God being with them. So, and then he adds, and by love, he adds that. And of course, we know he means touchy-feely, emotional, accompanied by oboe music, chocolate, flowers, and sex, right? No. Uh, He means, he actually tells us, he means, and by love unfeigned. So you know if those other things are included, we're feigning something, right? So he says, by love unfeigned. This one stumped me. Uh, Genuine affection for the souls of others' well-being, and apparently at all times. Um, And again, a choice. It seems like it's an effort. At some point in time in a relationship, that's an effort. And it includes a death to self and a wanting of life for the other person. So I have to think about love unfeigned a lot, what it means, what it looks like. I possess a good amount of love that is genuine for people I like and people who I care for. But it's the latter that you wonder about, right? And how do I have love unfeigned for someone I simply can't stand? How do you have love unfeigned? We can all fake caring, but how do you possess this love unfeigned that he talks about? Um, So I suggest a reality check on that verse when Paul says it's through love unfeigned. I don't think human beings, maybe, maybe, I don't understand, maybe there's some, but most people cannot have love unfeigned for other human beings completely. I, I mean, that's my opinion. We think when Paul says, and by love unfeigned, he's talking about love for others, but I want to suggest a workaround here. He says, we've endured these trials and sufferings by this, by that, by this, by that. And he says, and by love unfeigned. And I think that Paul is talking about love unfeigned for God. I don't think it's love unfeigned for others, because I'm not sure that's humanly possible in every situation. Love unfeigned for God That labels the love that we have for others as unfeigned. If you have unfeigned love for God, then the love that you are extending to another person, even if it's difficult and it is feigned for them, your love is unfeigned for God. And so therefore it's love unfeigned for them. If you get now, think about that for a minute. The the focal point of our devotions is the first great commandment. The first thing that we look to, according to Jesus, is love the Lord your God And if or when that love is genuine and unfeigned, then all expressions of our love for others would also probably fall under that category until we learn to really love others with an unfeigned heart. Um, This is not to say unfeigned love is not possible in the human experience, but it's certainly limited and failing as we amble forth among people. It is so tenuous. So to me... To be compliant with Paul saying, by love unfeigned, for us to read that and suggest we can enter into that thing that Paul does, the only way to be continually successful in this is that it's through our unfeigned love for God that we then do what he wants, which is to love others, and that would be still an unfeigned love. But standing on that love, that pure, deep, abiding love... um, we are then able to be true to this description. So, the question then becomes, 
What if we don't love God with all of our heart? What if we don't love God with all of our might and our strength and our soul? And that is a really good question. And before I go into this, I want to suggest we don't. That's the first great commandment. It's what the great Shema is. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. The Lord our God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord with all thy heart. Thou shalt love the Lord with all thy soul. Thou shalt love the Lord with all thy might. This is the first and great commandment. And I would suggest that nobody does. How can you tell that the level of self-will in your life is a fantastic indicator of the love that you have for God? And we all have self-will, and what I mean by that is a self-will that says, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to skirt around it one way or another. I am going to do, we call it missing the mark, hamartia, we call it sin. So the level of sin in our lives tells us how much we do or don't love God. So we have this commandment, you're supposed to love God with all your heart, mind. And I have read that so many times in my life, and I've just assumed, yeah, I love God. I love God. I care about him. I think about him. I, I don't think I do. I, I really had to think about it. Um, theoretically, I've loved him. Romantically, you know, he's there for my every need. I love him. But to claim and espouse a genuine love for God in every situation, uh, in the face of my life, I'm ashamedly far from getting there. I, I, just, I just am. So what can we do about that? That's the first great commandment. And can we concentrate really hard and, and love God more? Does it work like that? Um, some suggest that the love we have for God commensurately parallels the knowledge that we have of God. As we gain knowledge, our love for him grows. And there may be truth to that. There seems to be some correlation to understanding more about him, loving him more. Um, but then familiarity breeds contempt. And perhaps maybe the more we come to know him, the more we dislike him. I mean, these are just some, just some thoughts that you got to have. I mean, you got to remember, at least from the Christian story, Satan was in his presence when he fell. So Satan himself, an angel of light, didn't love God, and he was in his presence. So knowing him, I'm not sure that's the thing that gets us to love him. So that's why Paul, I think, famously wrote, O wretched man that I am. You know, that which I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And that which I do, I'm not supposed to do. So interestingly, most profoundly, I suggest that God has established a stopgap measure on this earth in and through one of our own. And that own Jesus mediates between the command to possess love unfeigned and our inability to really do it. He's the stopgap to help us. And first with men and then even with God himself when we really look at it. And it's in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, when we look at others, we cannot love them, all of them, without some feigning. You just can't do it. You know, it's polite to be loving in a church setting. You know, you're starving, the lunch is served, you go up to get it and someone cuts in front of you and everyone's looking at you like, oh, please be my guest, right? You're feigning some love because 
You got to, right? So when we examine our love and devotion to God himself, the ability to love him the way the great way, the way the Shema describes, it's in most people really lacking if we're honest. I mean, just think about your own life. Do you love God? Look at how it's written. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, mind, will, emotion, and with all of your might. That's an impossibility in the human realm. I don't, and please dispute me in the Q&A or email me and tell me how I'm wrong on this. We read it as if it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He really loves God. She loves God, you know, but, and so we're given a middle ground by our loving God. This is so phenomenal to me, who we can't seem to really love with all of our soul and mind and might. That mediation, that middle ground, that human sacrifice, if you will, hung between heaven and earth. He was suspended between the two. And it seems to me that somehow we're able to better love him in that being than we are God. In reality, I'm talking about not just rhetoric. In reality, I love Jesus more than the invisible God of the Old Testament, the great Shema God. And there's a reason for that. Perhaps it's because of what we're capable of as human beings, if not with our hands, at least with our minds, which is where feigning lives, and we realize who and what he was and what he did on the cross, if we really look at that, hanging between heaven and earth, not having to do that, but doing it out of love for us, in him we see a sacrifice. Do we see a sacrifice in the God of heaven before Jesus? He did sacrifice in ways, but they aren't apparent. In reality, the God of the Old Testament, what was he sacrificing? So if you were a member of the children of Israel, you're like, you can do anything. How come you're not doing it? And, you know, you kind of, we would kind of start to slip into an attitude mode that you could have with God. A spoiled child that is given everything by their parents um, doesn't necessarily grow up loving their parent that supplies them with everything. They just don't. They're, they're spoiled. They, re- they expect to receive, receive, receive. Let's just say the parent is super rich and really well off. Um, the spoiled child will be like, you're rich, you can give me everything I want. And when the spoiled child doesn't get what he or she wants, they get angry at the rich parent for not supplying their needs. They're spoiled. So the nation of Israel, having the great Shema, they're probably, you know, if they didn't have a full sold-out heart for God, and who has, how come, where are you? How come you're not showing up and taking care of my needs? Why didn't you come to my basketball game? You know, where, how come this is happening with you? Come on, you can do anything, right? So the amazing added value to this whole thing is our love for Jesus, our allegiance to him does not come by what we do. It comes by what he did first. We look at what he did for us as a sacrifice and we say, that being, I can really love and respect. So, and we look at him in faith and with that faith comes this justification, even a sanctification, which places us in the position of being 
as if, as if we actually love God with our all. We love his son, which is what he tells us to do. I think that's why we have one of the reasons why we have the stopgap measure. That's why the Messiah had to come. Because we could forever be on this earth and we could be viewing God as this omnipotent being. If you're omnipotent, why aren't you fixing things? We could look at him as this wealthy being. You own the whole earth. How come my family's hungry? You could look at him in any way you want. But if he's absentee and you don't think the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God has to suffer or doesn't sacrifice anything on your behalf, you're like the kid in high school whose parents give him a Mercedes Benz in 16, but never come to a game or, or play or event in that kid's life. And we know what that produces. So God has given us that the reason why we would love him with our heart and our might and our mind, even though we fail, but the reason we would is because we see sacrifice on his part, on God's part for us. So uh, that's a mind blower. By faith, we're saved. By looking on that, by faith in the life, works, and resurrection of his son, we're justified, sanctified, made righteous before the God that we all fail to love perfectly. By him we look to him because we fail to that great commandment. So, and then as this faith takes root and begins to press downward with fruit bearing upward, our ability to love others with love unfeigned grows in its propensity. How, why, ready? because he loved us first. That's how it works. This brings me all the way back to first base. When I'm confronted with not wanting to love another person, because I don't want to, a difficult person, let's say, I'm reminded that while I was, maybe am an egregious sinner, God loved me so much he sent his son, and his son loved the world so much he gave his life for me. I have no basis to not love that other person. If I could be loved by them the way I was, the logic is I need to love others. And so we have that relationship. We see that there was sacrifice on our part. So now I sacrifice my will, my intentions to love the other person. So uh, perhaps most importantly in all of it, how can the Christian choose, except for a failure in the flesh, but purposely allow themselves to fail to love another. How could you do that if you believe that God loved you as you are with all your failures, so much so that he sent his son and his son died? One final note on that, and I've talked about this before, but over the years when I meet and talk with people who say, I don't have a relationship with God, I really can't get God, I don't understand Jesus and the whole thing, there's usually a disconnect in the way that person sees God and, Jesus, and or Jesus and or the way they see themselves. Somewhere between how they see themselves and how they see God or Jesus there is a problem in that perspective. And if you can talk long enough with them, you learn what that problem is, and you can see why there is a gap between that relationship that could be more like this. And typically what it is, is the person will see God as too superior, so far out there, doesn't have any reason to pay attention to them, or drops way back to being a buddy and isn't holy. Either of those perspectives is a problem. 
Then you have the human side where the person views themselves as extremely superior, like way up there close to God, uh, or they're way, way back here on this end and just totally inferior and God's way that way, so the, the connection is too broad, or it's almost where they're parallel and the person doesn't think there's any need for a connection any. Those are usually present in almost everybody who has a difficulty of understanding why they can't seem to engage with God. And the, and the gap is made known when the person says, I'm a sinner and a holy God loved me so much he gave his son to die for my sins. Who did do that perfectly? When they understand their sinful nature in relation to what was given, that causes them to break and that connection to happen. But when there's, it's too broad or it's too close, there's a difficulty in people's minds on how to be up. Not that it's all in the mind. It's not. It's by the Spirit. Jesus sort of touched on that a little bit in an indirect way. He tells this, it, the story is told in Luke 7. It says, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and he sat down to food. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, which she knew that Jesus sat at food in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees which had bidden him saw, Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known what and who manner of woman this is that touches him for she's a sinner. And Jesus replied to him and says, Simon, I have somewhat to say to you. And he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor that had two debtors. The one owned 500 pence, the other 50. Big money differences, 10 times the amount. And when they had nothing to pay, <clears throat> the creditor frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, Simon, which one will love the creditor the most. Simon answered and said, I suppose him who he forgave the most. And he said unto him, you have judged rightly. He turned to the woman and said, Simon, see this woman, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I have not yet, she has not yet ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. When a person believes that they don't have a reason to be broken, humble before God, and that they're up there close to God, they love little. They don't have the respect for the sacrifice that was made for them by him. And so they don't relate. They think they're fine. This is one of the problems we have with many LDS people. Because they live by this presumed law, and they think because they do their home teaching or pay their tithes or go to the temple every week and don't, you know... Uh, have relations with the neighbor's wife, they think they're right up there close to Jesus. 
and the relationship is lacking and people who are involved in that religion and come out and come to know the Lord know the difference because you've been in a religion where everything's good. I'm close to God. There's, you know, I'm doing all right. He loves me. He's my father in heaven and he gave me my brother Jesus and he paid for when I was young and I stole some bread and blah, blah, you know, and you miss the fact that we are egregious sinners from the heart and he saved us while we were yet in our sin. You love a lot when you're forgiven a lot. When you can't see the need to be forgiven for a lot, you'll love little. That's what he seems to be saying. So that's a long thing to talk about in the deal of the ends in Paul, Paul's life. But he stated that through love unfeigned, he has been strengthened. Knowing his life and his background and history, I can't help but believe that the magnitude of his religious sin enabled him to genuinely love the Lord. I think Paul had a really big wake-up call because when he describes himself as a Jew, he says, as, as, in terms of the law, almost perfect. So you know that in terms of the outward expressions, he was feeling really up there. But in the reality, I think he realized what an egregious sinner he was. Then he says, and by the word of truth is another way by he did uh, overcame these things that he was in. We don't know if it's talking about sharing the word with others, whichever it was, sharing the word or possessing and knowing the word of truth. Uh, it was a benefit to his dealing with the difficulties he faced. And of course, there's no new revelation to you, but... Um, I have very little in my life that can console me like the Word. That, that's why I stay in the Word, because it consoles me. It's the living Word, and it keeps me grounded when otherwise I wouldn't be. So I, I am a huge proponent of the Word. Um, okay, and then he says, and by the power of God, and most think that this is Paul talking about, that he overcame his trials and difficulties by the miracles that he did as an apostle in that day. That's highly probable. Speaking in tongues and all that stuff was very big. And uh, I think that's what he's speaking about. And then he says, and the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. The armor of righteousness on the right hand and of the left. And the interpretations of this are extreme. But uh, to be armed on the right and on the left is a colloquialism popular in that day when you would have a sword in the right, probably, and a shield in the left. Armed with righteousness, though. So when he says, I'm armed with righteousness, I think he's talking about the righteousness of Christ was with him. I don't think he's talking about his own righteousness. He speaks about his own righteousness in such low terms. I think he's talking about being armed on the right and on the left with the righteousness of Christ. It's Dicosiana, a terrible pronunciation, and it means of the good character of to be justified by. So the apostles were meeting conflict and persecution, opposition, slander, just as a soldier would go out to war armed on the right and on the left. Paul is saying he did the same as an apostle in these distresses they faced. But uh, I think it's the righteousness of, of God. So as a result, Christians in general are kind of walking paradoxes. Uh, you enter into a battlefield uh, and you're supposed to die to the flesh. So you have all these conflicting messages. You're supposed to be meek 
and yet you're supposed to be strong. And all these paradoxes that come with being a Christian, he seems to be mentioning. At verse, I call it 8b, because he still is calling things by. He does two more bys, and then he goes to the ases. But the buys he mentions in verse 8b seem to be, should be included in the ases. He says, so by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report. He starts to do this back and forth thing. As deceivers, yet true. As unknown, yet well known. As dying, yet behold, we live. As chastened, but not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. So back to the last two of, of verse 8, even though they're phrases that begin with by, I suggest that they belong to the last collection, setting it up sort of. So he says, we've suffered these things, we've been in these distresses, we overcame them by these things, and now we're seen as these things, as. And the first one, and he, he says, is by honor and dishonor. We're seen as both honorable and dishonorably. And he continues to maintain that he and his fellow uh, laborers have not given offense to anybody. They were honorable in all that they did. So, and then he says, by evil report and good report. Two Greek words, duphemia, euphemia. By good report, duphemia. By evil report, euphemia. And reproaches and bad language toward us and praise and compliments toward us. We're getting them both. And that's the Christian walk. You'll get it. Um, so enduring praise when one is doing good is one thing. We all appreciate that and like that. But when you're doing something good and you receive criticism, that's when it really gets tough. And Paul seems to be facing that greatly there at Corinth. They are constantly on the guy for not measuring up. And so he's now entering into this part of his writings where he says, We've, done, we've gone through all this. We've done it by the Spirit and by love unfeigned and all these other things. And now the result is we're seen as this and as that. As this and as that, right? So um, really tough. You're trying to be your best. Speak your, from your heart. Be honest and have people slander you, you know. And we know they did that to Christ. We know they did it to his apostles. And we know that that happens to his believers. So part of the difficulty lies in the fact that as Christians, we're not at liberty to slander back. That's really difficult, you know. When someone attacks you, the advice is you, you just deal with it. You rejoice, actually. Uh, when people evilly malign you and mistreat you, you don't slander back. And that's really hard. Like Christ, we're our, we, who we follow, we're supposed to take it. And in public and in private. And one of the most difficult things in the world is to be the disciple of the master um, and know that you got to go through that if you are his. And I, you get faced with it constantly. We recall that when he was doing good, that the Pharisees came and said, you're doing this good by Beelzebub. You're doing it by the power of the devil. So there's uh, an example of him having to face it. Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, 
actually 3, 8 through 11. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So now we're understanding what he meant by righteousness on the right hand and on the left. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Ready for this last one? If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. We've been talking about resurrection both in 1 Corinthians morning and the afternoon. And I am convinced that the resurrections come in many, many different ways, shapes and forms. And Paul was speaking of the ultimate resurrection of the dead, which is what he hoped to attain. Not that he knows he's going to get, like he preaches. Everybody will be resurrected. Not that. He says that I might attain unto this resurrection of the dead. So that word attain means to arrive at the resurrection of the dead that he wanted, which would be in the glory of the Son. That's the one he wanted, the resurrection of the dead. All right. He says as deceivers, he's seen as a deceiver and yet true. And isn't that the truth? Especially, you know, in this world where, you know, the gospel, Jesus, faith in God is considered by so many kind of a deceitful message. It's kind of like you're, you're putting out a message that's not good. It's deceitful. Uh, all the while being a message of truth with a capital T, as deceitful, Paul says, and yet telling the truth. Certainly Paul was considered a deceiver, especially to the Jews. He was considered a major deceiver. He was going out and up undermining the, the nation. So as a deceiver, yet in teaching the truth. It's no different today. He says we were as unknown and yet well-known. And, you know, unknown maybe to the world at large, known to God, does anything else matter? Or maybe he was known to God, is, uh, the way he's known to God is nothing compared to being known to men everywhere. I don't know what he means by that. We don't really know. We don't know if it means he's unknown in terms of his true intention, yet well-known by the works he does as an apostle. It's just something he says. And then the next three seem to orbit all around each other. And it's something that we can appreciate. He says, as an apostle, we are as dying. And behold, we live as chastened, but not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So those three all deal, you know, dying, chastened, sorrowful with the loss of something. I think it's the loss of the flesh, the loss of the self in this world. And then with the gain of something, we live, we're not killed, we're rejoicing. We have those two comparisons going on here that he's saying that he's being known as, right? And these passages really speak to, uh, they speak to where I am in my walk, at least, that I have to admit I'm not adjusting to real well sometimes. Uh, my flesh resists dying and yet living. My flesh, re it really resonates to living while living, <laughs> not dying 
and then being alive. It wants to live and also live. Um, it resists being chastened, but not killed. It doesn't want to be chastened at all. And it certainly doesn't like sorrow. It wants to be rejoicing. So how about you? You got to ask yourself. We look at the Apostle Paul called by Jesus. What did he experience? He tells us. And I said last week, we really know more about his life and what he personally endured as a human, not born of a virgin, not born of the Holy Spirit, but as a man walking with Christ, we really know what he faced as an individual Christian. And we're able to see someone actually play it out before our very eyes. So this was the living status of our friend Paul. And it's the reality of the paradox we call the Christian walk. You're alive, but you're dying, but you're still alive. So Paul adds the last two saying in the first one, we are poor yet making many rich. And we don't think that means monetarily. He's saying we are poor in the things of this life, in the way we are living and, and subsisting and getting on, but we're making many people rich in their faith, rich in God. It's, that's what our call is as an apostle. And of course, we know that if we're going to effectively share him and his truths, not be of this world, all of the stuff that comes along with that, that you will probably be as poor if that's what you're about, and yet you're helping other people become rich. Teaching and preaching the truth never, in, at least in biblical times, uh, really comes with much wealth or fame. It's, all, it's always looked down upon uh, by the powers that operate those things. Tough. Uh, this doesn't seem to work that way as much as me, we might want it to at times. But Paul, uh, in tracing the path of Christ in his own life, he contributed greatly to the wealth of knowledge of others, to the salvific wealth that they had and then the truth that they had they were abundantly rich in their lives because of what he did perhaps what he writes in romans eleven thirty three tells us what uh this means when he says oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of god that's where the depth and the riches that's what he calls it the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of god Right? How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Invest your time in knowing the depth and the riches of God, of his wisdom and his knowledge. That is a wealthy woman. That's a wealthy man to know God in that way. So um, I think that's what Paul was delivering all around him. And um, You guys know that, you know, for 13 years I was a stockbroker in three major brokerage houses and a couple banks. And uh, I was always surprised at the mindset of those who were dead set on the acquisition of wealth. That it really, even as a Mormon, I was always really intrigued by what drove them. And uh, it's only when I came to see what real riches are in the knowledge and wisdom of God that I was able to discover my vocation and then be able to set that world aside, which always was uh, quizzical to me. I, I remember several, maybe five different stories of extreme uh, importance of people who had built their whole life on 
uh, riches of this world and what they were about. And um, really interesting, the, the sandy foundation you have if that is what you build on. Not that you don't need it and want it and seek it for your family and for yourself. And those things are important. But when you build just on that, it's really an interesting worldview that people get. I've told the story of the guy with emphysema, like the worst emphysema, could barely breathe and arguing for another basis point on uh, some mutual money market that he wanted. <laughs> One more basis point. <laughs> He's about ready to, to go. And just the focus on another basis point for a couple hundred grand, you know, it was just amazing to me. So um, Paul says, having nothing, meaning in this world, no property, no money to speak of, no fine clothing, and yet contributing to the wealth and possessing, he says, of all things. I want to wrap up today right now just by doing a quick survey of what, when Paul says, but having all things, what that means in the Christian world, that as Christians, we possess so many um, descriptions of all things. And I'm going to do it really quickly. Acts 13.39 says, By him, all that believe are justified from all things. By him. All that believe are justified from all things. From which you could not be justified by the law of Moses, he adds. How about the certainty that all things work out for good to those who love God? Romans 2.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love him. And those to them who are called according to his purpose. We know that all things, right? How about the fact that as joint heirs with Christ... We will receive all things. This is incomprehensible. We're going to receive all things. Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things? That's what he says. All things, freely. How about the freedom that we have in Christ? Let me give you a couple passages on that. For one believes that he may eat all things. Another who is weak can only eat herbs. Did you know that there's a freedom in Christ that if you believe you can eat all things, do whatever all things, drink all things, you're free. If you don't think you can, you're not. Romans 14, 20, meat destroys not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. Again, there's liberty. If you're okay with it, be responsible and stand before God. Clear in your conscience. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. How about the access to the deep things of God? Did you know that you have access to them? To all them? Listen, God has revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searches all things. Yea, the deep things of God. So the Spirit's given to us, it reveals things, and the Spirit searches. It looks deeply into the things of God. An ability to judge everything. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, But he that is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. 
There's a lot of all things at the table of someone who follows Christ. And what about uh, all things really being all things? As 1 Corinthians 3.21 says, Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, is what Paul says. You are at liberty. We don't have that freedom in Christ on the wall for no reason at all. You're at liberty because you have looked in faith to the one who came and sacrificed everything so that we can live. Hand in hand with that one in 1 Corinthians 3, Remember, we're in possession of the gospel that says, you remember, that we bear all things, the love we possess. We believe all things. We hope all things. We endure all things. All things, four times in that. People say, do you think there's no hell? I I hope there's not. You you believe that everybody's going to be reconciled to God? I believe it. I believe all things. I believe all good things. That's one of the descriptions there. You know, uh, we're living in an age described in the following ways. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the son also be subject unto him to put all things under him that God will be all in all. That all the old things are passed away. All the new things have become new. All the things that are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He says plainly, as we've covered, God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. And then Paul turns around two verses later and says, now you be reconciled to God. He's done all his work. If you want to have something to do with him, now you be reconciled to God. He's reconciled the world to himself. Done. You want him? Reconcile yourself to him. So we wrap up today, two days before Christmas, and know this. In Christ, we possess all things. All things have been completed. He has subdued all things through his death, resurrection, ascension, return, and consummation of that age. We inherit all things that are waiting for those who love God. And in this we can trust, and in that we can relax. Okay, Q&A, if anything, and then one quick explanation. Vanna, your services are not needed. All right, let me explain. We have a copyright attorney, and he tells me, McCraney, you're going to be working on this translation of the New Testament for five years. In order for us to get copyright protection for the whole thing in advance while you're working on it, you need to go through and finish part of it and you need to offer it for sale. So this morning, I fit, not this morning, I finished the book of Mark. It's the first run through in the transversional apostolic record and, uh, and it has its footnotes and it has its colorization, which is explained in here. And, we have about 15 names of people who purchased this, and we have their names and phone numbers. And so then in January, I'm going to the attorney, and we're going to take proof that we have been offering this to the public for pay. And in return, we can get copyright protection of everything we're doing so that my enemies can't go and create their own transversional apostolic record, copy the formatting that we're doing, and just make it miserable along the way. So, $1, 
for the book of Mark, if you don't have a dollar, someone here can provide you with one. And, but I don't want you to take a hard copy unless you give me your word. You don't, I don't want you to write in this, this is your copy, but if you'll just take some notes and say, this was difficult for me, I'm not sure about that, you know, what about this? If you don't want to do that, don't take one of these. Just give me your email and I'll send you a PDF. And you'll get the PDF for free. But if you want to read it and give me feedback, which is what I hope you do, will do, come up, take this, make sure that I get your name and phone number for our little list here. And then uh, you can leave with the book of Mark. All right? Let's have a prayer. <laughs> okay. You guys. All right, Lord, we uh, pause and we thank you and just pray your spirit will be with us during this time and coming into the end of this year, so hectic, so lonely for many people, and frantic, and so materially based. And, you know, we know that you came and you were called a wine-bibber and a glutton, and you enjoyed a nice get-together and party, and that these things have been provided for us, and it's a great time of year. We pray that we'll be able to keep it in perspective, a light touch on the things of this world, and move forward into what you uh, have for us this season and beyond. And we pray especially for the people on the list. And uh, our heart goes out to those who are enduring a, a holiday season without their loved ones who have passed. Most specifically, we are thinking of Gracie, a young girl who, who passed uh, three and a half weeks ago from uh, cancer and her family and sister who are enduring her absence during this time. And we just pray your spirit upon uh, them and all others who are feeling that sense of loss during the holidays. We pray for uh, Lisa and the cancer that has returned full force in her body and that uh, you will sustain her and move her through. And uh, all the other people whose names have come across this year uh, with, with cancer and disease and are facing their uh, mortality in, in this life. And we just pray you'll be with them those who are lonely and those who are ill and bedridden and sick, Diana and others that come to mind, Liz and her infections. We pray for everyone's colds and flu, all the families who have lost loved ones, safety for our friends and traveling, for Eric to get a bus pass, prayer for the USA Democrats and Republicans to work things out. Lord, you're a God of miracles, but that one I'm not sure about. Uh, Jesus comes to get his followers off this sick earth very soon. And uh, LaCosta Gifford, bless her health and bless us with answers for communications. And uh, whatever's on the hearts of other people who, who have written on this and they're trying to communicate their frustrations, we present it to you and ask for your understanding and peace. We love you, Lord, and we're grateful that you loved us so much. You gave us your only human son whose birth we celebrate in the next couple days, in Jesus' name, amen.